few things to say before we do our next sitting. It's maybe I intimated this earlier today, but it's not uncommon to have a bit of a bumpy landing of the first, as I mentioned earlier, the, the first insights are often bad news in terms of the state of our mind and body where we tend to be live a kind of individualistic, absorbed, disembodied life and devote much less time to trusting the unfolding of life and excessive amounts of time trying to figure out life, trying to figure out what to do. And so our, so much of our obsessive thinking is about time. And any time we think of ourselves in time, we create an imaginary world of ourselves, of, as I mentioned earlier, of having come from the past, passing through here on our way somewhere else which is just a way of framing ourselves in a very narrow, a narrow way that creates the imagined future as the, the ultimate source of well-being and happiness and actually puts us into a state of, of tension, a suspended happiness and uncertainty, anxiety, the sense of, okay, if my happiness and well-being depend on what's going to happen, then there is always uncertainty since what, whatever we call the future is unborn, it hasn't happened. There's always a sense of uncertainty. Will it work? Will it not? And all the, all the while, the, the, the well-being and happiness that we are searching for, what we expect at the end of the rainbow or when we've figured it all out, is already waiting. That's why this... One Tibetan teacher says, don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant when he's already resting quietly at home in front of your own fireplace. You know, it's reminding you to come back to yourself. Or as Derek Walcott, the famous poet who recently died, he says, come back to yourself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you've ignored for another who knows you by heart. It says, take down all these love letters from the bookshelves, the desperate notes, peel your image from the mirror, sit and feast on your life. The effect of all those desperate notes and that uncertain search for happiness somewhere else has left our bodies frozen tight and left us unable to, to uh, feel what goes on in our bodies. We're great at thinking about our bodies and thinking about the picture of our bodies. Body image stuff is so intense, but we're not so good at just feeling them. We're great at thinking about our feelings about things, not so good at feeling our feelings. And so the process of settling back into our body, our mind back into our body, our body back into our mind, is uh, a little bit bumpy. So it is a... um, at first, there may be, when you experience something unpleasant in your body, you'll say, uh-oh, something's wrong. When really, it's just unpleasant that we're not familiar with how to actually feel things. And it turns out when our mind says, oops, something wrong, something's wrong, whatever discomfort gets compounded by our reaction. And so we start to see in our practice that it's never really what's actually 
the primary thing that's happening, let's say a very unpleasant sensation, it's never that that's the problem. It's the way we relate to it. And you say, you'll see that in it as a universal truth in meditation. It's not so much what you're experiencing, it's how you relate to what you're experiencing. And mindful attention transforms the way we, we relate to our experience from one of contentiousness or trying to make something happen or aversion or resistance uh, to openness to curiosity, to interest, to affection. And that, you don't have to be busy becoming affectionate or loving or anything. It, it, it emerges naturally when we're, as we're more present. Attention brings affection. It's just that simple. So part of the way that we gradually develop this non-contentious, more friendly relationship with our especially our physical experience to to start with, is we start opening to the whole range of sensations that are felt. We're often used to thinking of our body as this kind of monolith. It's just body. But we don't actually experience a body. We experience sensations. Streaming, stabbing, itching, tingling, squeezing, aching, cool, warm, We experience an ever-changing flow of sensations, and some of them are intensely uh, unpleasant. Some of them exceedingly pleasant, rapture, bliss, felt through the body. A whole range. Because they're always changing, none of them are a place that we can rely on. So the pleasant ones, we attempt to just let them wash over us and let ourselves feel them without trying to hold on. And the unpleasant ones, we also let wash through us without, without adding to them by pushing them away. So that's, that is the general art of being with our experience, is not pushing it away, not grasping, nor do we, do we, and this is a little bit more subtle to understand at first, we don't personalize the experience that's happening. We don't make it all about me. We just make it what it is. So we, we let... We let aching be aching, not, oh, I'm aching. We don't make it into a personal story. We just experience what that phenomena is. So we don't personalize it. We don't just space out. We don't push it away. We don't grasp. We just show up. Who said showing up before you said showing up? So as you sit, even though we'll continue to let the breath be our anchor, support, place to return to, help to gather and sustain, we will inevitably be visited by, by sensations that are a lot stronger than the sensations of breathing. They will move to the foreground, the, the breath will move to the background, and when that happens, something calls your attention, you let the breath recede, and you, you let yourself experience what that sensation is. I had... For me, I, the most prominent sensations were, were knee pain or you know, knee stuff. And sometimes low back or upper back. How many of you notice neck or back tension today? Yeah, so just so you know you're not alone. How about knee pain for the, oh, you, some of you on the floor? So normally we go, uh-oh. Instead here we just know aching, aching or burning, burning. And we just let ourselves feel it. Now, if, on the, if when you get up to walk, it still hurts after three minutes, you know that you probably should change position. Otherwise, 
It's what we call dharma pain. There's pain in, in life. If you're born, definition of birth, leading cause of pain. It's just the way it is. And, and it won't harm you. In fact, what will harm you is if you, if you react to it. So we just notice aching, aching, aching. And we, because it's unpleasant, it, and if we pay attention to it, it will just grab your attention. We're so used to avoiding it that we don't even know the power of it to, to help us actually be, develop more mindfulness and concentration. So we just try to, try to take it in, you know, oh, aching, aching. We don't just notice it at a glance. We, we are three qualities of, of mindfulness when it comes to the development of wisdom. Face-to-face, where you direct. You're not just glancing at something. Oh, yeah, over there. You turn your full attention to that sensation. So face-to-face. The second quality is non-superficial. You let yourself sink into it. Really feel it intimately. Non-superficial. Same with moods and emotions. We'll get to that later. So face-to-face or direct, non-superficial. And then the last part is sustained where we stay with that experience to see what happens to it. I don't know if, if you're new to this, you probably never heard so much about sensation, but it's, there's, the whole Dharma is right there. The whole teaching, the, all the wisdom that you need is right in the flow of sensations in the body. Now, the invitation, as you heard from what I said, is to go, is directly go into it See how it behaves. See how it changes. See whether it gets stronger, gets less, so that you're actually with it in a sustained way. Sometimes, though, particularly unpleasant sensations, our mind, no matter how much we say, oh, I'll make space for you, I love you, no matter how much, our body just and mind goes into a state of, of fight or flight or fear or reaction. And especially at times of the day when we're, and sometimes after lunch when you're a little tired, to try to stay with strong sensation, sometimes our mind is just not strong enough to do that. At those times, it's not even wise to try to sustain for too long. Notice whether you have enough mental strength to be with a, a painful sensation, the unpleasant one. If you find that you're just bouncing off of it and your, your mind is starting to get weary then it's better to redirect your attention somewhere else. Come back to the breath or um, go to some place in your body that you can rest a little bit that's not, that's not so, that's more neutral or unpleasant or, or pleasant. And just hang out there for a little bit. And then sometimes then the, the attitude, our attitude softens a little bit. We get a little easier in our mind. And then we go revisit that painful place again and it's often the pain is gone because our reactions have diminished so much. Is this all making sense or is it too much after lunch? Okay. What did you say? Both. Both, yes. yeah. Anyway, so to make a long story short, let's just um, include now sensations more prominently in our practice. And also sounds. When sounds become stronger than the breath, it's just hearing. We don't have to get involved in what you're hearing or how much you like it, how much it reminds you of the, of the, 
place of your childhood or you may have those little associations, but mostly we just want to experience the simple fact of hearing and what happens to sound when it's heard. So more interested in the process of things than the story behind them. That's meditative awareness. That's mindfulness. So I will scan the room to see whether you're falling on your face and we'll measure the length of the sitting based on that. In the meantime, see if you can take a a posture that's not too rounded. If you have your back against the chair, uh, you're more likely to drift into sleepiness. So free back. Just that little extra energy to hold your body up will sometimes balance the tranquility. And if you, though, in whatever case, if you start to get so dull, then please feel free to stand up. The Buddha talked about mindfulness in four postures. Sitting, walking, standing, or lying down. But for balancing, we want to stand. Lying down and we'd all be napping. So please feel free to stand up. You can either be aware of just the sense of your contact of your feet or standing, or you can go move to your breath or whatever else you're noticing. But since you're sitting now, feel your sitting body. Feel the touch of your rear on the cushion or chair. Touch of your hands. Touch of your lips. Soft touch of your eyes. form or the shape of your body. It's aliveness, vibration. Just sensation. And once again, connecting with the more obvious or subtle movements that your body makes when it breathes. You feel that little brushing of the air as it passes your nostrils or upper lip. Maybe just the gentle rise and fall of the belly or chest or the whole body. As much as possible, let nature unfold. Let the body breathe as it will. Just accompany the breath with your kind attention, loving awareness. You might take a minute or so 
just to familiarize yourself with the felt sense of your body by just slowly sweeping your attention along the contours of your head, its hair and its scalp and its your skull and just sensing shoulders with the skin, the flesh, the muscles, the bones cascading down your arms, legs to the tips of the toes, back body, curve of the spine, muscles, skin, bones, sits bones, buttocks, belly, genital area, heart area, throat, till there's no part of our body left out of the field of awareness. And just notice how our body's breathing. No need to look for anything other than the sensations of breathing unless something calls your attention. State of pure receptivity.
Are you aware right now? What are you aware of? How are you relating to what you're aware of with openness and relaxation or with resistance or straining to make something happen? Lost in a narrative. No need to do anything about what you become aware of or undo, just know. The experience that you're having and your relationship to it. Kind attention.
If you're falling into a state of dullness, sinking mind, or if you're straining or struggling, just notice that. And feel free to, from a place of openness and skillfulness, feel free to refresh yourself and begin again. May mean a slight alteration of your posture, may mean a softening of your attention. Do everything mindfully, deliberately, and begin again. Every moment is a new beginning. You can always begin again.
If you're feeling any unpleasant sensation, see if you can accommodate it, make space for it. The art of meditation is the art of making space. If there's something pleasant, make space for that. If it's neither pleasant or unpleasant, make space for that. Notice if you're waiting for the bell to ring. Just notice that.
just five minutes or so of any comments or questions about working with physical sensations, descriptions, comments. Anybody have any questions? Hi. Um, so when you feel something that's uncomfortable, is there a part of, like, I find myself actively trying to release it in a sense. Like, I acknowledge it, but then I'm not just with it. I feel like, and I'm like, okay, now go away. Or, you know, like, almost like I talk to, which I mean, I've been doing for years, but I do it in my meditation. But I'm wondering if that's really, if that's different than what you're saying about yes, that's, leaning into that's it. cheating. Okay. <laughs> Now, in, uh, in general, if we pay attention to something in order for it to go away, we're bargaining. Mm-hmm. Saying, I'll look at you if you'll go away, if you'll you know, <laughs> go along. And that, what you're actually conditioning is an inability to be with it just as it is. Okay, yeah. So even though all of us, out of love for ourselves, would like to, the unpleasant things to go away, mm-hmm. that the methodology of trying to get it to do that actually makes it harder to be with things in such a way that they go away by themselves. Yeah. We, in some ways, we, when, once you push away something uncomfortable, our, what, we start to perceive that thing as a thing. Mm-hmm. It's much more solid, much more monolithic. But when you turn toward it, what starts out as a thing that's really uncomfortable, when you explore it, it starts being a moving, dynamic changing condition that actually becomes more interesting, more a cause of understanding, cause of calm, cause of focus, cause of, uh, of equanimity, the capacity to be with it and not suffer, which is not something we're used to. Mm-hmm. So first we always try to experiment with, not, without, with paying attention to it without any agenda. Okay. And then noticing, oh yeah, I can, I can do with that. And I can see that that my body is in a, I'm starting to tense up around this and I'm not able to keep my equilibrium anymore. Now the most wise and loving thing to do would be to change my position or to put my attention somewhere else to regain a sense of balance Mm -hmm. in my, you know, in my uh, attitude. So then it totally makes it possible to make adjustments uh, but not out of aversion. So we're not conditioning the mind that's reactive. I don't know. It's, it's a big conversation. Please. Uh, question here. So if you don't have a good relationship with your breath, what are some good ways to deal with that? You mentioned that earlier. Could you say a little bit more about your particular relationship to the breath? Um, asthma. Asthma. Okay. Yeah. So that's so naturally with asthma, you, you may have built up certain kind of conditioned reactions to to breathing challenges, you know, to being challenged. So you could, in time, with when you have a certain momentum in your practice, you could start really seeing the difference between the breathing and the different mental reactions, and you could learn a lot from that. And slowly, slowly that could become a place of, of actual ease when now it's a, a place of some, some degree of tension. It could be a, a source of, of self-compassion. It could, many things could come out of it. And you could increasingly 
develop a, a very loving relationship with the breath. But at first, our mind isn't trained enough, and we have a, enough residue of conditioning from the past that it's actually, in some cases, wiser to use something else as your primary anchor so that you can build up a little momentum. And for that, you would just you could either, um, as I mentioned before, you can use touch points. So in the same way that that I notice the the rise and fall or the in and out, there's a kind of two part in out rising falling. You could, and it has a certain rhythm to it, the rhythm of the breath. The reason when we connect with and sustain our awareness of the breath, that wave of in and out is is quite calming and steadying. It's just like sitting and watching waves in a way, but you're being with that flow. So to to accomplish that same sense of of it being rhythmic in a sense, you could start with just the sense of sitting and then touching. So like in and out, sitting, touching, sitting. And then when I say touching, it would be choosing some more specific point like your lips or your hands or your rear end. So sitting, touching, sitting. So when I say sitting, you're, you're taking in the entire experience of your whole body sitting. And you hover long enough to feel that and then you shift to touching. Sitting, then touching. So you're moving your attention a little bit with those different experiences. Interestingly enough, when people from time to time use the, the touch points or sitting and touching as their primary anchor, quite naturally, in the course of doing that, they'll start to notice the breath going along just fine. They'll be drawn to the breath without a lot of tension around it. And then the breath becomes really very clear. Other times people use that sitting and touching is when you can't feel the breath at all. Sometimes our body is so quiet and our, our body's need for breath is so low that, um, that you can't feel it. And especially if your attention's not so subtle, then it's better to find something more gross like the whole body or, or these touch points. I'm trying to think if there's some other good ones. Hmm. Please. If I think of some other primary anchors, I'll, I'll let you know. So, so I'm feeling a little embarrassed saying this, but I want to say it anyway. So I kept nodding out and falling asleep, see? And, and, I, and then I would, I'd wake up and I'd say, oh, I shouldn't be falling asleep, I should be breathing. Um, judgment, judgment. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and so what I really want to do is stay f- nodding out and falling asleep. I say, <laughs> I'm sure nobody had that feeling but me. Um, but that was interesting. It was just interesting to notice that, um, yeah, in other words, I didn't feel a, um, any particular desire to be in the present moment. I was kind of, you know, happy resting. Um, as opposed to being in the present moment, normally the breathing is makes me feel better, calming and so forth. But I felt pretty calm, nodding out. Well, you, you, yeah. 
So I, I just, I'm just sharing that. Stupid meditation, and I'm not talking about you personally, but stupid meditation is very, very comfortable and very intoxicating and, and yeah, calming to our nervous system. So it has its benefits, but it doesn't have a lot of urgency in it. It doesn't have a lot of keenness, not a lot of insight knowledge. Uh, so it, it, um, it is like many other sensual pleasures. It gives you a little pleasure, but then that fades. It's not reliable and uh, doesn't necessarily make you wiser. So that's kind of like, you know, the, in terms of sense pleasures, you've heard the, the ecstatic poet Hafez. He would call that the pleasure that we get from that. He would call it a counterfeit coin. He says, learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that buy you a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. <laughs> so so we, can, we could sleepwalk through our, you know... Yeah, but it wasn't really that. It I, was, I, I'm, yeah. I'm not speaking yeah. to you directly. I said, what's that funky smell? Um, Defensive it, is like this. Yeah, <laughs> it was like, you know, hey, if I take a nap now, then I'll be a, a more awake and then can enjoy the wisdom and the beauty of the well, meditation. Very, possible. But it's, yeah, it's yeah. possible that... that I think the key is the judgment. I there was I didn't have to judge that. Agreed. I could just just let it be. Yeah, just let and it I be. I was tired. So let it be, but also we we do yeah. we do uh try to have the value of as mu- uh, to maximize wakefulness as much as possible. Yeah, so I was stupid for a while. Now I'll be smart. <laughs> <laughs> wake up, wake up. So the next time, just for the purpose of awakening, I would just stand up. And you can be very relaxed, but that little extra energy to hold your body up will balance the tranquility. And then you'll see what that's like, too. It's a longer, it's a larger conversation. Sometimes we do need a nap. And sometimes the insight in our practice is that we're, we're not caring for ourselves in such a way where we get a deep rest. And so people will feel often a lot of, especially on longer residential retreats, people the first several days, it will be like a swamp. They'll just... <laughs> anyway, I saw a hand in the back, please. Yeah, I just have a, a question about um, bringing, bringing the mind back to a central or focal point. And you had mentioned transcendental meditation early on. And actually, I started when I was 10. <laughs> Um, and so it was sort of foundational practice for me. Yes. I don't practice that now, but I find it very um, comforting somehow. Or, or yes, to to come to bring my mind back to something, whether it's a light or some kind of focus or an, a, a yes. meditative word. And so right now um, in my practice, my my mind is just racing all over. And so I just want to understand from you. Um, <laughs> Help or help me to understand the the, the 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 rationale, the purpose behind not doing that. Yes. So a mantra, especially if you've practiced it before, is it has it's conditioned. It has habit strength. So it will call, especially if it has positive, pleasant associations, etc. And your mind will just start naturally going to it. But this particular practice, uh, 
we try to use what is, what is already presenting itself so that we don't rely on any kind of extra add-on or any kind of mantra or anything. We just we use the, the rhythms. It's really a back-to-nature practice. And we use the touch points or the breath very similar as we would a mantra, just initially to develop that, that coming together of mind and body. The, the difference between a mantra, it's a much more of a, it's more of a mental formation. It's a, it's a concept in a way. And so you're, connect, you're using a concept to tranquilize the mind. It's not so great at learning that embodied awareness. And so what we're trying to do is have you be able to walk through your life at home in your body and have your body be the cause of peace wherever you are. And not have to wait to your mantra or use your mantra or use anything other than the very texture of your own immediate experience as the source of your well-being. So that's, and having said that, Sometimes your own wisdom, your own authority will say, this, is, this would be skillful means for me to... I'm so scattered right now. I have this tool that I've, that, that's been helpful to me. Let me just use the mantra a little bit. And it's totally fine. So don't, um, don't fight with yourself about it. And just know that it, whatever you have practiced will visit. <laughs> if you, there's a teacher named Padma Sambhava who said, if you want to understand your past... Look at your present experience. <laughs> but then he also said, and this is very inspiring to me, if you want to understand your future, look at your present actions. What seed are you planting right now? So you, the more that you have this habit of, of putting your attention in your body, the more you're home with yourself. And if you're more home with yourself, you're more at home with others. As you're less in need of them to fill, fill that space of... of Agitation. Okay. Let me use agitation itself to let me become agitated. Oh, yeah. Please, last, last one, and then we need to, I want you to have the rhythm of sitting and walking, so please. Just a posturing question. I see some people are sitting on the floor, some people are sitting in chairs. Um, does the position, if I look at most statues, most of the time they're not sitting in chairs. Most of the uh, Buddhas were sitting on the floor. Does that position? They just didn't have good chairs in those days. (laughs) (laughs) Does the position on the floor lead to to more insight in some way? Say that again. Does sitting on the floor lead to more insight in some way, or is it fine to continue a practice of sitting in a? Well, one of my root teachers, to me, the preeminent Western Dharma teacher, Joseph Goldstein, is actually teaching the retreat up the hill. He's practiced in a chair for years and years and years. And not heard his insight knowledge. Um, but having said that, most people will discover that the wakeful energy flows easier with, with um, sitting on the floor, with the knees, you know, knees touching, back straight, Again, that energy to hold your body up, not falling into a chair. People who sit on chairs tend to have more dullness. But again, you have to find out for yourself. 
but really in this tradition what's what you do with your attention is almost more attention more um, important than what you do with your body as long as your body's awake enough to pay attention that's really the important element thanks for the question okay we have a chance to just cook a little bit so you've got a little momentum from the morning you may not feel like it you may feel like you're going backwards you may even be planning your escape anyone (laughs) but this is also an opportunity by just staying with the flow of 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 the transition to walking and then doing some walking practice, you can, as you slow down a little bit, into I don't mean literally slow your walking pace, but slow down into the more of a sense of unfolding present moments, you will see more of your mental habits the longer you're here. You'll start to see the way you're already looking for the end of the day or how you're going to use it in your daily life. And we begin at this point to start to include the mental habits or the mental reactions as an equal part of the practice. So if you feel one of the things that you'll likely notice, I mentioned it during the sitting, you may feel some resistance to walking. You feel any resistance to it now even before you walk? Okay, how do you know that you feel resistance? I bet there's some kind of physical corollary, some kind of tension in your body, and a little thought some kind of unpleasant thought associated with it, if you're feeling that. I just notice that. And notice what happens to that feeling when you just notice, oh, this is resistance. You stop building the story about it and everything, and you stop projecting how the future is going to be, and you just feel resistance. And know the thought that was associated with it. And what happens to it? Loses a little bit of its power. It's just resistance. And it's a perfectly wonderful thing to pay attention to. Usually when resistance comes, it creates a little internal tension, not liking. And that tension then generates a whole little narrative. Oh, I have to walk again. Last time it was really boring, and this time it's probably going to be boring. And, you know, they tell me I should walk, and to me that's not really meditation. That's just, like, look like a zombie. And, and, uh, oh, what that was entertaining... Let me think about zombies a little bit. And before you know it, we're just off on some... So usually we're proliferating. Or that, that resistance has turned into a whole identity. I don't like this. And then pretty soon it leads to then some doubt about what we're doing, desire to be somewhere else, restlessness, dullness, all of that. We call that a multiple hindrance attack, where the, all the different mental states converge and... and we say there's no way that this can lead to anything but misery. <laughs> so just see resistance as resistance. Now, on the other hand, if you feel kind of curious or eager to walk, notice that. Remember when I said this morning, whatever you become mindful of that is wholesome and helpful will get enhanced by your attention. Anything that's, that's not so helpful will get loosened by your mindful attention. So whatever it is, whatever attitude is presenting itself, you just want to notice it. So please, we'll do a 20-minute walking period uh, and just treat it as though you're still on your cushion. Buddha noticing the Dharma of walking. So every moment you're still sitting on your cushion, just attending to the immediate experience. And 
for a few of you, whoever I have time for, who may want to speak one-on-one, I'll just wait here for a little bit. And then if no questions, I'll come out and join you in walking. So please continue and be continuous and be careful with your transition too, because that's part of mindful attention too.
Meditation is like a psychic Roto-Rooter. Those of you familiar with Roto-Rooter, it creates the, the process of being open, welcoming, creates a vacuum, as I mentioned before, and what is often very easily censored, either repressed or acted out, blame, demand. Instead, we, we say, my mind is, this is metaphor, is as vacuous as the sky. So my mind is open, and when my mind is open, there's no censoring. Things will just appear. They will, and many things appear. And especially when we've been in the habit of being frozen, uh, lost in our imagination, it can be quite startling when you see what flows through your mind. As one of my teachers, Bhante Gunaratna, says, one of the teachers I like, I have not been in his physical presence, but I really enjoy his teachings. He says, somewhere in the process of meditation, you will come to the realization that you're completely crazy. Your your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. Not to worry about this. You're no worse than you were yesterday. (laughs) It's always been this way and you just didn't notice. Or just put in a slightly more poetic way, the words of Francois Fenelon in the year 1651, or somewhere between 1651 and 1715, as light increases. And essentially what we're doing is we're shining the light of attention on our experience. As light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We're amazed by our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings and thoughts like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We never could have believed we had harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter and we are filled temporarily with horror. Bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. So please don't evaluate. If your mind is really messy, don't evaluate it. That's actually the sign that your practice is opening up, that you're starting to see the the nature of our conditioned experience. And ideally, if anything, when you see your form of crazy that it becomes the cause of self-compassion, not of judgment. It's not your fault. We're all conditioned by what you could describe as, as non-personal causes. Everything that's influencing us day in and day out, from beginningless time, really, we're not disconnected from that. We don't exist apart from our parents, our teachers, our culture, from everything that came before. And so taking so much personal blame over something that is made up of so many non-personal elements is in some ways a grievous error. It's an error in perception. It's what the Buddha called wrong view, personalizing everything, when there is nothing in us really that exists completely independently from everything that has brought us into being, including our, the, the, the littlest thought. You know, Everything is connected to everything else. 
the more we have this wider view, more that light shines, the more we regard ourselves with, with mercy for how vulnerable we are, how much we are affected by the winds of circumstances, and, uh, and that judging mind that takes everything so personally and builds that case for the prosecution. There's something wrong. There's something wrong with me. It's my fault. All that starts to melt away into an openness and compassion. So the general idea is just be easy with yourself. Be amazed, but, but it's not your fault. As my friend Wes Nisker says, another Spirit Rock teacher, he says, you're not your fault. Live with that understanding. So having invited you to more open, more open yourself more to the flow of experience, to, to relate to our experience with this light of attention as opposed to being just completely lost in the, in the stream of our, our consciousness, we, again, we add this quality of of what we call mindfulness, sati, clear comprehension. We, we infuse this stream of consciousness with a, with a clear seeing, with clear perception of what's happening. And it, we're not used to relating to our experience with clarity. We're used to just being carried along. So it's a, it's a new thing to, to take this seat. As Ajahn Chah, that Thai teacher I talked about, he says, take the one seat just put it in the middle of the room and then open all the windows and, and let things come in. And you'll see many things come and go. And he says, just so you don't get too caught up in how long you sit, he says, don't worry about how long you can sit. Just keep noticing whatever you're doing, wherever you are. He says, some people think that the longer that they sit, the, lo- the wiser they'll be. He says, I've seen chickens sitting on their nests for days on end. <laughs> anyway, I don't want to get into that. But in the process of opening, the instructions simply describe what you will notice. So don't get caught up in doing it right. Now I have to do this. Now I have to do that. But I do describe what you will notice. I do it in gradual ways so that you don't get overwhelmed by so many things uh, to pay attention to. We included already the sitting body with its sensations, the, the, the sensations of breathing, all included in our in our awareness that the breath being that that simple anchor home base to return to for most others just the sitting body sitting different touch points we included sounds we included the whole range of physical sensations when they become stronger than the the basic primary anchor and how to instead of freezing or reacting pushing away we open to those predominant sensations. Notice when they're pleasant. Feel the pleasantness. Notice when they're unpleasant. Notice when they're neutral, neither pleasant or unpleasant. Now, I didn't explain this so much before, but it turns out that that pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, that is the, you could say, the the source, the cause of all of our reactivity is the way we, is our our conditioned reaction to pleasant is to grab, is to want more. The conditioned reaction to unpleasant is to push away, is to resist. The conditioned reaction to neutral is to space out, is to not notice. 
When we react with grasping, that produces, and wanting more, it produces tension. And once that tension is produced, that tension has to go somewhere. Where does it usually go? The tension of wanting. It goes into fantasizing. It goes into what I want to happen. It goes into the projection of time, of, of when I'll get what I want and how it's going to make me happy or how I can keep what I have. That quality of grasping, it was the Buddha called one of the three poisons. It actually causes us stress, causes us to feel what he called dukkha, this feeling of unsatisfactoriness, that something's not right. Sometimes it's translated as the wheel out of round. And it really comes just in reaction to the many pleasant moments that we have in our life. Instead of being able to just feel the pleasure of things, we tend to grab. And then that sends us off on a whole wheel of, of associating our well-being with keeping or having more. All that happens in our mind. Funny thing is we don't even go anywhere, but our mind travels into imagined worlds of how we're going to figure our life out so that we can have that pleasant feeling all the time. But as we experience pleasant feeling here, we see it comes and goes just like everything else. And we, that's how we develop wisdom. So we hover a little bit with pleasant experience and we feel it. And then the same with unpleasant, we immediately react with aversion. Tension, pretty soon we're making a case for the prosecution against ourselves, that thing, the people in the room, we hate everyone, everything. All that started with a reaction to unpleasantness. Not much going on, really. But our mind builds these huge stories of they caused this and did. And in, in a really innocent way in our life, there's been so much harm caused in many of our lives, either with, from near and dear ones or, or cultural things or racism or sexism or any number of isms. There's, there's been a lot of, of understandable reaction to aversion to intensely unpleasant experiences. But whatever the, the source and cause we freeze and then we end up spending a lot of time in, in virtual reality, in our imagined worlds. So slowly in our practice, we learn how to, when something is unpleasant, to accommodate it so that it doesn't have to proliferate into a, a case for the prosecution, a lot of anger, frustration. And even if there is anger and frustration, we learn how to feel it, feel the unpleasantness of that. Let that be the cause of more presence, more peace, believe it or not. Once you're relating to a painful feeling, instead of relating from it, from a place of reaction, it becomes, a, it becomes something that actually helps us in our life. To be able to feel what it's like to be angry. Not to think about what we're angry about. That's, that's endless. The, the objects of anger are endless. But to actually... F- not just to think about anger, but to feel it. Ah, this is what anger feels like. This is what happens to anger when it's felt. So we apply to the feeling both of unpleasant or any feeling that follows it, we apply a kind of mindful methodology where we, we recognize that feeling that's present. We accept that that feeling is present. So you could turn this into a classically used acronym called RAIN. 
recognize, accept, investigate. We, an investigation means we, we stay with that feeling and see what happens to that feeling of anger when it's felt. So we investigate the flavor of it, the unpleasantness of it. We see what happens. We recognize it as a changing condition, like the weather. And in noticing that that feeling of even that thing you're most angry about, when you just feel the anger, you'll see that arises and changes all by itself. And it, you stop identifying with it so much. It's not, it stops being about me. It stops being wrapped around a story. It's just anger is angry. Sadness is sad. Joy is joyful. And it becomes less in real time, in meditative awareness, less about me. Does that make sense? We're, we tend to wrap everything around the sense of me as though it's mine. But really, it's its own, it's its own feeling. Please. Oh, rain is not, that's the part that's not non-identification, non-personal. It just comes and it goes by itself. It's a selfless process. But the end means non-clinging or non-identification. So we want to approach everything with that with that indivisible whole that we're calling rain. It's not actually four different parts. It's an indivisible. Because when you recognize, in recognizing, there is in the moment of recognition, there's a quality of acceptance. You're not pushing away. You're not grasping. It's just, oh, this is what's here. And in the moment of being with what's here, there's an inevitable noticing of, of that experience as a, as a part of a process. So there's investigation in that. And if you just see that experience as it is, it becomes clear that it's, it's just happening all by itself. Like you don't ask to feel angry, anger comes. You don't ask to feel sad, sadness comes. And in that way, even though your sadness may not be my sadness, in that from meditative understanding, we see that sadness is sad. It comes and goes by itself. And the same goes, and I'll include this also in the meditation now, the same goes for the thinking mind. We typically think uh, that th- thoughts are my thoughts. They're me, they're mine. But a thought of yourself is not yourself. It's just a thought. And thoughts are their own thinkers. They pop up and they go away by themselves. You're sitting here quietly and all of a sudden, thoughts arise. It's one of the most accessible places to understand the selfless nature of reality is that I'm sitting here and if I sit here long enough according to statistics I don't know if this is true or not but that if I sit here long enough or through a day I will be visited by unbidden 65,000 thoughts and that 90% will be quasi-repeats from the day before unbidden so it doesn't take long to see that thoughts are selfless. They are their own thinkers. And the more you see that, the less you take them personally. The more you see, if you're human, definition of birth is you'll have every kind of thought entering because you're, not, you're made up of all these non-personal influences. You'll have jingles from commercials. You'll have, I had tongues. I had all kinds of things. Images, visions, 
none of them personal. They may have some relevance to my individual life, but they, from that meditative point of view, they just come and they go. Same with the sensations, same with the moods. And we start to see over time that anything that arises in our experience arises by itself. And everything that arises passes away. This is where we develop insight into impermanence and change. It is this insight into impermanence and change that released, that, that inspired the Buddha to find uh, something more reliable than trying to, f- trying to find lasting satisfaction in things that are slipping through his fingers. And that's when he decided to practice and said, well, well, maybe I can just transcend this whole wheel of ever-changing experience and, and uh, find something that's, that's, not, um, that's not so conditioned by circumstances that it's, something more reliable. And because he saw that his, his body he couldn't rely on. And when he saw he couldn't rely on his body, there were two things that happened. There are, two kinds of, there are three kinds of pride that fell away for the Buddha. Pride in youth. We tend to build up a lot of identity with youth. Pride in health. A lot of identification with health and and it's not so reliable, as you may have noticed. And as well, pride in life. We tend to cling to our existence, not realizing or not remembering that open secret, that definition of birth, leading cause of death. Somehow we have to, somehow we have to come into harmony with that fact. And part of the way we come into harmony is we don't cling so much to life or youth or health. We do everything we can to thrive, but no, but just like William Joyce's, William, Jan- William Joyce's poem, he says, he who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy, but he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity sunrise. It's through letting go that we find that well-being that doesn't depend on circumstances, that reliable refuge. Please. From the Buddha's point of view, would it be fair to say that the only thing reliable is consciousness? Well, in the Buddha's teaching, the word consciousness is a very specific meaning of something that arises and passes with each moment of sense experience. But if what you mean by consciousness, the, the kind of the nature of mind or... or um, Yes, except the Buddha would never use that expression being the observer as though there's a little agent in there who's observing. He'd say things are known in awareness. And so it's technically speaking... Uh, so then awareness is the only reliable. Yes, but as soon as you say awareness is the only reliable, then you start turning it into a thing. But it really is the unity of all things. So it's not really existing as a separate thing. But our mind tends to want to create some kind of solid, what, what in the Sanskrit is called an atta or self. 
just a bigger self instead of a little. And that the Buddha said, that's just, um, that's just more clinging to identity. So this may be a little too technical, but consciousness is just, consciousness arises with sounds and vanishes. Smells, vanishes, tastes, and the consciousness that arises with smell is not the same consciousness that arises with taste. So that also, if you see the momentariness of consciousness, it also cuts through the idea of there being a, a solid entity. Too technical, sorry. <laughs> so in the meantime, I, I, I mostly wanted to highlight that it's through attending to what we call body and its sensations the moods, and even thoughts and images that we can understand the, the, the whole nature of our reality. And understanding more ideally leads to less holding, less reactivity, leads us to be able to feel free and at ease, even in this madly changing, uh, challenging world that we live in. That they, we may never be able to have peace in the world, but we can inwardly be at peace with the world. We can be in a state of non-contentiousness. And that's what our practice fulfills, moment by moment. Because in a moment of attention, that's a moment of non-contentiousness. Being with life as it is. You keep planting that seed over and over again, you get much more, much less reactivity, much more love. So I wanted to, I didn't want to do a whole Dharma talk there, but I ended up doing one. So I'd like us to practice now with working with, uh, with sensations, with breath. And now I'd like to include different states of the heart and mind, which means different <coughs> moods, emotions. This is learning how to feel our emotions, not just think about them. So you may, in the course of your practice, start to feel resistant or, or calm or spacious or you may have a little narrative about something and then you start feeling angry about something someone said to you and instead of making that whole story real we just notice in the moment anger is the weather of the moment we feel it and we feel it through our body and we notice what happens to it we apply that acronym and then when we, if, if it's not necessarily the bloom of some big feeling, you may just ha- see the flow of many, many thoughts and images float through your mind. We try not to turn thoughts and images into the enemy in our practice. Thoughts are to our mind as the sound is to the ear, smell is to the nose, taste is to the tongue, sensation is to the body. It's a sense experience, a mental sense. So we try to... Just notice, oh, the thinking mind thinking, just like a sound is being heard. It's very subtle. We tend to get lost in them. But to the extent that you can, you want to notice, oh, thinking. You may become aware of thinking in the middle of a thought, after it's gone, just as you're about to think. And you, you, in seeing the flow of thinking, you will start to notice that some common themes to the thinking, common thought processes. We don't want to get involved in the content. He said, she said, whatever it is. We mostly just want to know the, the process of thinking. And in that process, you'll start to notice, oh, 
There's my friend, the planning mind. That tends to be most people's on their top 10 list, top 10 tunes. Planning, remembering, rehearsing, judging. Did I say comparing already? Analyzing, uh, reminiscing. Did I say rehearsing? That's another one. If you have to think about what kind of thought, don't bother. Just notice thinking, appear and disappear. So we slowly are including everything in our meditation. If it all feels like too much to pay attention to, just come back to the simple experience of your body breathing. That's all. That's fine. And don't look for thoughts. Don't look for feelings. Don't look for sensations. Only when they move to the foreground and the breath recedes the background. Then pay attention to them as though they are our welcome guests. Gracious awareness, kindfulness, that's the quality of our attention. So even though you may be a little bit weary right now, this point in the afternoon, just feel a graciousness, a gracious awareness of the fact that you feel weary or tired, or resistant. No, this is what resistance is like. And let it bring you into the simple awareness of the sitting body. Breathing body. And you want to hover long enough in just feeling your sitting body sitting until the idea of your body melts away and you mostly just feel sensation. Feel that sense of aliveness, sense of stillness, sense of vibration. Feel the relaxed touch point at the eyes, the lips, hands, rear end, like points of feeling or stars flickering in an evening sky. And then those gentle waves created by the breath, in and out, arising and falling, Continuing to connect and sustain our connection through the duration of one half breath or one whole breath. Knowing that if I'm feeling any sense of the body, I'm here. I made it, the past is gone, future unborn, just an idea. There's just this moment. Just this breath.
Sound arises. No interference with the flow of attention. Just sounds appearing and disappearing. And as they fade, settling back into the felt experience of the body, breathing, sitting, until something else calls the attention. Just this breath. Moods, thoughts, and images. Eighteen minutes.
Feel free to accompany whatever is predominant, whether it's sounds, sensations, moods, thoughts, and images with a soft mental label. Thinking, thinking, planning, anger, irritation, calm, aching, burning, whatever it might be, you can just support the ability to stay with that predominant experience with a soft mental label. Closely approximates what's happening and soft in a way that says, it's okay that you're here. If you notice the tone of the label gets very loud, that usually tells you that you're feeling very reactive to what's presenting itself. And then you want to notice that with a softness. Frustration, frustration. Dullness, dullness. Remembering. Just this moment.
Whatever you're experiencing in this moment is the right experience because it's what's happening. See if you can make space, accommodate whatever is present.
been quite a little joy to be with you today, and I so appreciate you all staying with the, the day. It's against the stream, and usually everything in our conditioning says uh, stay distracted, and so actually coming face to face with ourselves is uh, it's somewhat heroic, it takes courage, it takes strength, it takes a, a certain degree of wisdom already and purity to understand that uh, the way out is in, instead of the way out is out. <laughs> so I appreciate you staying with the day. Just one more thing to say about about working with moods and emotions. I really offered the instruction, light version of it, but just one thing to say that the general value is if there is a predominant feeling, mood, emotion, that you actually feel it that you meet it directly, that you investigate its changing nature and its selfless nature, that you just stay long enough to see its natural behavior. But some with certain feelings, like, for example, anxiety, there, I'll just use anxiety, other kinds of fear, that when you start to approach them with that kind of interested awareness, sometimes they tend to initially compound. You, for example, you start feeling anxious about feeling anxious, and pretty soon you're anxious about feeling anxious about feeling, and it compounds. So it's a, it's a little bit more nuanced about how you let yourself experience emotions like anxiety or fear, where you touch it, and then you, you move away from it consciously. You don't check out, but you move your attention to something that's a little bit more easy to accommodate something that you can something that's either pleasant or neutral it could be just as simple as your your breath or as simple as your touch of your hands or your rear and you you move away from that experience to remind yourself that the whole world is not a monolith of that feeling it's not global that that even in the midst of being anxious, there are places of refuge or places of ease and safety. So you move away, you come back, and that helps our attitude to remain open so that we're not adding to the anxiety with more anxiety or adding to the fear with more fear. So it's not always going right into the middle of something. Sometimes it's visiting, moving away, visiting, moving away. Also the sensitivity to when you have enough strength to be with an experience. If you try to stay with something when your mind is really weak or you're tired, then you'll, you will have, your mind will tend to crash. You'll tend to wither. So we want to, at those times, you want to move your attention to something you can accommodate more easily also. Does that make sense? Okay. Any questions about working with moods, emotions, thoughts, images, please? Here comes the microphone. Thank you. And um, I notice a lot of therapists saying that they use mindfulness now in their uh, in their repertoire. Um, <clears throat> what I'm hearing you saying today is that uh, uh, if you have a feeling of sadness or anger to be with it. You're not saying analyze it. Normally, a therapist might say, what's the sadness about? You know, what's the anger about? Let's analyze it. Let's delve deeper. Uh, So it's contrary to 
that type of... Well, a therapist that may be using mindfulness in their work may, may initially talk story with the person, have the person tell their story, and there's something very healing about somebody witnessing your your story or your experience, what, and even your speculations about what something is about. But a person who's practicing mindfulness with them will also have them include their, the experience of what they're experiencing and, have, and teach them how to be with something in real time in the room. And initially, it's a great support to have someone do it with them. And then hopefully that person can take that same tool of being able to to be with themselves wherever they go with those same kinds of feelings. So some of it is interpretive, some of it is analytic and therapeutic work, but some of it is is just connecting with the felt sense. Most of the really good therapists I know are do are are um, very much including uh, the felt experience of something that you could think about what something's about all day and not get the same. Uh, understanding or relief as just feeling it. Yeah, so it's both. It's, so it's not contrary, in other words. Yeah, I want to hear your story. And there's something really healing about, about you telling it and me hearing it, or all of us. Because we each have very rich and interesting stories. But meditative awareness helps us to step beyond our story but doesn't take away from the beauty of, of, of being able to, to collate our story from all the streams that have run through our life and to, and to tell somebody about you, about ourselves. And there's something healing about that. But yet there's, there's, a, conclusion, there's a healing in, after the story is told, not to keep delving deeper. Yeah, deeper, not to but, keep picking up the story. Right. No. But you want to experience what you are beyond any story. Yeah. That's where the difference, where the different lies in liberation teaching, in teachings that, that not just, don't just point to being more mindful of this or that, but point to a, a, a heart's release, a, a liberation, and through a transformation of one's life, one's ethics, morality, what the training of one's heart and mind, and real insight and wisdom about the nature of reality. Enlightenment, liberation. So it's what, what the modern world has done is it's plucked that center of the, of the liberation path, it's plucked that piece called mindfulness out of this much more um, elaborate uh, liberation teaching. And it still has its benefits, but it doesn't quite capture the heart of uh, where mindfulness fits in, in liberation. It's too hard to talk about now, but... I mean, I don't, I don't really need an answer for this, but it's something that feels very kind of... You don't of need an answer for this, but... It's and? I, just was, I was repeating I, for the people who couldn't hear. Okay. Oh, I see. <laughs> but... Um, you know, there's something about this practice that can be troubling because of the sense of community and the sense of really having to be alone with your shit, you know. And there's something about that that can be, you know, in therapy, I'm a therapist, and I love like homie, I love body work, I love community, I also work in drug and alcohol, so community is really important. 
Um, so sometimes I find it isolating, you know, to do the practice. And I want, and I, I don't think I'm there at the point where I'm connecting with others within the practice. Yeah, that's the issue. Yeah, because I don't know if you've had that experience where um, people feel like it's kind of lonely. There's, I mean, maybe there's loneliness in me, and that's why it's coming up. Yeah, but, but e- yeah, and even if there is loneliness in you, it's it's just loneliness. It is, right. It's right. another changing condition, and right. you're really speaking to to an easy way to interpret the practice as it being alone. Yeah. But the most I've been I've spent months with I people know. in silence and had the most intimate relationships of my life, but nonverbal. I know. And so it's and the truth is, and I think you're speaking to it, nobody does this alone, really. Mm-hmm. You can't do it alone. Gotcha. We need support. You know, it's I often will bring in on a day like this some of the analogous teachings from I don't know if you've ever heard that lessons from geese. Do you know the le- how geese, when they fly together, they get 83% greater lifting power? You know, the, each one still has to resolve their own wings and all that, but they, they do it a lot better together. They get where they're going faster. Everything happens better in community. And the tendency is for people to highlight the Buddha, you know, waking up, the Dharma, you know, what's, what's actually happening. But but give a little short shrift to the to the sangha community, and it it really is the it's the um, I'll just tell you a, a brief story from the from the Buddha's time. His cousin and his chief attendant, maybe you've heard this before, was named Ananda, and Ananda one day said to the Buddha, "Isn't it true, Lord Buddha, that half of the the holy life is keeping good company?" He said, not true, Ananda. It's the whole of the holy life. So, anyway, for whatever that's worth. Please. Yes, and I'm going to repeat your question anywhere, anyway because it were being recorded anonymously. I won't even, I won't give your name. Thank you for risking anyway. Um, so I do therapy, and we do about a ten-minute. Oh, thank you. We do it, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We do about a 10-minute um, mindfulness exercise. In group therapy. All together, yes. Mm-hmm. And um, I find it extremely helpful, and I, I definitely feel like it brings our group together. Mm-hmm. Um, as part of that group therapy, I've tried to bring more mindfulness into my life. Um, I have some issues with anxiety and depression. And um, I've definitely found the mindfulness to be really helpful for symptoms of anxiety, um, but not as much for depression. I find, I don't know if it's something like with the anxiety, there's still this kind of energy available to pay attention um, and be present. Um, but when I'm feeling depressed, it's, I find it very difficult. And I'm just wondering if that's common and how people tend to deal with that. 
Yeah, I really appreciate your question, and uh, it's a long answer, uh, but sometimes when when we do when we do have enough strength to pay attention to what we're calling depression and move beyond just the idea of it, which is very heavy, it's a very heavy uh, identity. Like I once went to a teacher, and I w- I was extremely ill. I had been kind of delirious, high fever, etc., and been vomiting and this and that. And I, I went to the teacher, and after I was feeling a little bit better, and I said to him, he asked me, how are you feeling? And I said, I'm feeling a little better, but I'm still sick. And he looked at me really intently, and he said, where is sick? And I don't know if this makes sense, but I couldn't find sick. And then in that moment of losing the identity that went with being sick, which heavy, walking around, dragging my body around, but without the identity, this surge of energy came into my system. And I realized that I had incarnated as the sick one. And it's very easy to incarnate as depressed and have it turn into an identity. So sometimes, sometimes really attuning to what do I actually mean by that? What's it like moment to moment? And sometimes just the effort to notice it without the label, sometimes a whole new reservoir of energy picks up. And it is possible to aerate even something like, like depression with, with attention. Sometimes, though, like you said, sometimes the mental strength is so diminished that we don't really have the energy. So that in those times, wisdom and love says, change channels. Do something that gladdens your heart. Do its opposite. Go out, take in, try to freshen your senses. It may not seem, and that's what we would do meditatively. That's what we're doing all day long is we're freshening our senses. We're brushing the dust of memory so that we can actually take in the immediacy of life, which is very energizing. So you wouldn't just sit and meditate at that time. You probably need to go out and move your body, move your blood, you know, take in the sense experiences. So sometimes you have to be creative. So don't just think of meditation as just sitting with something. It's, it can be very creative. Thank you for speaking up. I appreciate it so much. Okay, I think that um, in order for me to share a few things about practice in daily life and give a... Is that a question? One last one. recommend for anyone uh, who wants to follow this path if there's any book or any person that it would be important to follow if you have something in mind just to there's this amazing book called (laughs) invitation to meditation (laughs) that's a tricky question yeah Uh, no there's so many 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 books you could read all the books in the world though and not find anything that will liberate your heart more than just being with yourself moment to moment and training training the attention. The, the way the Buddha put it is there's nothing more conducive than mis- to misery than an untrained heart and mind. There's nothing more conducive to joy than a well-trained mind. And as Hafez said, you, you carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into a nightmare. Don't mix them. You carry, but then he goes on to say you carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy and mix them. So that's really... 
reading is great and, and as a great support, but don't let it be a substitute for, for the vividness that nothing can really capture in words what, what it's like for you and I to look at each other right now, for us to be in the room together and know that we're, that we're alive and that we're, we're not that we're human and that we're being, we're not just busy doing. So that, you can't get that in a book. And there are lots of books that point to this kind of immediacy that I would say great companions for the teachings would be Joseph Goldstein, who I mentioned before, many books of his. First one, the classic called The Experience of Insight, which is transcripts from a 30-day meditation retreat that gives the the unfolding of all the teachings and with a great humor and great, very multicultural uh, he, in terms of his different strains that he has running through the teachings. Uh, Jack Cornfield's book, A Path with Heart, is great. Joseph's new book called Mindfulness is great about the four foundations, some of which I covered today, four foundations of mindfulness. Uh, there's just so many. But I think uh, my book is a, a good reminder to just point to waking up to where you are and finding peace in whatever you're doing wherever you are and it's it's stripped of all the the buddhist language and it's so it's something that people give to other people who might be wouldn't be wouldn't want to have to weed through the the association with buddhism or all these other words and just want to be free want to be want to be well but so many books please Any specific books for teenagers? I think um, there, one of my colleagues, uh, Diana Winston, wrote a book that was especially for, for teens. It has the word wild in the, in the uh, title. But her name is Diana Winston. You should, it should be in the bookstore. Please. Mindful teen. The mindful teen. Wonderful. Thank you. And for those of you who are athletes, the mindful athlete, that reminds me, George um, uh, Mumford, who worked with the Chicago Bulls basketball team, and he's a very cool guy and wrote a wonderful Dharma book for athletes. So just getting back, I want to just contextualize a little bit. So before you leave... Now, I, I think you've already gotten the point it's that, uh, that if, you, if you want to practice, it's not something you can just read about. You have to actually put, as we say, put your tush on the cush or pay attention. And you can see, hopefully you got a taste today, that it is very portable. Wherever you go, attention can follow. And so you can ideally melt away the idea that practice only takes place on a cushion with somebody that looks like that. We get excessively idealistic and we all think we should look like, like Buddha rupas, but, uh, and that's a very American thing to be excessively idealistic. But really, life is messy, and, but attention is there to provide insight, wisdom, love, wherever we go, and if you, if you nurture it. Having said that, though, it's really important to counteract our chronic cultural habit of associating our worth, our life, 
our identity with busyness. You know, Amy Krauss Rosenthal had recently, I think maybe even deceased editorially, she says, she says, we, anybody, time somebody asks you, how are you? You say, busy. How's your week? Good, busy. You name the question, busy's the answer. She says, I know we're all terribly busy doing terribly important things, but more often than not, busy is the most uh, knee-jerk response. She said, has people always been this busy? Did cavemen think they were busy too? This week is crazy. I've got 10 caves to draw on. Can I meet you by the fire next week? Her thing is that she associates it with the advent of coffee bars and the and coffee's byproduct, luscious byproduct, productivity, the joy of doing, accomplishing, crossing. So that's part of being a human, a human too. But we've evolved into human doings and lost the sense of human beings, really rooted in 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 the heart, in the in our humanness, and being able to just touch into into the heart of sadness when we're sad or joy when we're joyful because we're so busy running from silence really that that the heart just can't breathe the extent, to the extent that it needs so we need to stop periodically you need to stop do and stop many times a day quickies they call it in the tibetan tradition where you just listen, just think about it right now well not think about it but just notice your body Notice your breath. So you've, you've already turned toward mind and body coming together. Then just, just trace your attention through your body. Just kind of feel from the top of your head all the way down to the tips of your toes. And then just sense your mood. Sense what you may have been thinking about a moment ago, any residue. Come back to your breath again, just for a few moments. That's a quickie. And literally, within moments, your nervous system starts getting regulated. It just starts balancing things out. So there's no excuse for not practicing. Don't, so don't impose the idea that you have to sit a particular length. Even though I, I do suggest that you... You start in the morning creating more space in your life to let this, this, sense of, this sense of awakening be the hub around which you do your day and live your life, that you give it enough space to really uh, express that I really want, I really want to, to inhabit my life. I don't want to just be you know, running through my life. And then like the Dalai Lama, this is the, what the Dalai Lama said, when asked what surprised him most about humanity, he answered, man. Because <laughs> he sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. And then he's so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he's never going to die and then dies having never really lived. So we don't want it. We don't want to postpone our life, don't want to miss our life. So, so that's why you want to stop, you want to create that space in the morning. So I say 30 minutes at least. But start with five and build up. Why? Because you, you're loving what's happening. Because it's coming from the inside 
It's not because some authority says you're supposed to sit 45 minutes, otherwise you're... Pretty soon, if you have that, that authority voice, you'll be fighting with it and you'll lose. So start from the inside, little by little, little by little. And getting back to that nobody does this alone, find people to sit with. Find a group. You know, you're always welcome at my group in the city and the talks are always uploaded so people listen to them all over the place, videos, audios. But they're, if, they're, if you live in the Bay Area, this is Dharma Disneyland. This is, <laughs> this is Mecca. If you can't find a group or people to practice with here, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. No, it's, it's really easy to undervalue how much, how important it is to have like-minded company in general in your life. People reflecting back to you what, your, what values you want to nurture. And so highly recommend that you find people to practice with. Having led this group in San Francisco for the last 32 years, it is no doubt, it is no doubt the cause of me remembering what's important. Every, just the opportunity of being able to function in the role of, of uh, the leader, I, I get to remind myself every week. It's amazing. And it, because it's really easy to fall into the, into the obsession with the politics and the screens and whatever. And all those things are, they're part of our life, but you can, you can have Dharma in the middle of it. You can have awakening in the middle of it and not, um, and not, Postpone that. Why not? Um, so wait, I wanted to... We have five more minutes. Is that a question or... Apps like Headspace. Apps are great. <laughs> <laughs> They're great support. This is one of the added supports to practice. Again, I still recommend that you find people to sit with, not just apps. Yeah. Something that really brings brings you into relationship to life, where you, where you feel nature, feel your nature, feel a sense of communion, other people who really care, care about social justice, care about about our hearts, not just about um, acquisition, money. It's really, it's a Dharma desert in that way. Maybe not in the Bay Area. There's lots of people waking up, but mostly we just kind of drift into keep busy, buy a lot of stuff, then die. (laughs) So the last thing I'll just say, because... I can't do this all in, I can't believe we're coming to the end of the day, but I didn't want to leave you without some description of, maybe it's not possible to do this, but as I said earlier, the, the Buddha realized that at age 29 that he was, that he was uh, subject to vulnerability. He was, that he saw somebody his own age who was ill, really ill. He saw somebody who was extremely old and he saw a corpse. These things, 
to a deluded 29-year-old who had been kind of spacing out on, on pleasures, this kind of metaphor for, for this kind of self-deception that we can literally kind of sleepwalk in a dream that, that uh, seven, as they said in the Bhagavad Gita, seven billion of us will die within a hundred years, but somehow it, we don't think it'll happen to us. That was when, in the Bhagavad Gita, when I forgot who it was, was asked, what's the most wondrous thing in this world? And the most wondrous thing is that everybody's dying, but somehow we don't think it'll happen to us. But the Buddha was struck by the, un, the impermanence and unreliability of this life and everything in it, and said, there's got to be more to life, something more reliable than just than just being born, going through this cycle, getting a lot of stuff, having a lot of experiences and relationships, and saying goodbye to everyone, and then and then dying, and then in there in his life, it was all about being reborn again, and you know they they believed in that sense of going around and around this wheel, and he said there's got to be something, this going around this wheel, this is. He called it samsara, it means endless wandering. You just keep going around and around and thinking that we're going toward happiness, but we're just getting caught up in more and more dissatisfaction and wanting. There's got to be some freedom in this. He says, and I'm not, I, I don't want to go into my dad's business and have a, be a king. Or a, I, just playing the same game would feel like being sitting on a bed of coals if there's no reliable peace in my heart. And so that's when he started practicing. He felt a shock at the unsatisfactoriness of things. And it's not to say everything is unsatisfactory. There are many beautiful things, but everything that's even beautiful things are marked by unreliability. They don't last. So he wanted to find something more um, reliable. So he started to meditate using elements of what we did here today. And he very quickly experienced those, some people called it depth or quiet. But then he saw that those, even the more beautiful experiences, even though they're inspiring, they, they also, they're just a high class form of changing conditions. Just more refined kind of happiness, but nevertheless, it passes away. So he said, oh, I'm not going to spend my meditative life trying to find special experiences. That's just a corruption of insight. That's just spiritual materialism. So after that, he tried to just starve his way out of, out of reality, tried ascetic practices, and all that did was make him rigid, sick, tired, and unable to meditate. So he saw that you, if you go to the extremes of sensual indulgence, which he did in his younger years, the extreme of, of self-mortification and denial, uh, that doesn't make anybody anybody happy. So he, that's when he realized that there there's a middle way. And he re, he remembered a time when he was young and he was well fed, comfortable, able to really take in the sense pleasures of the world, just be able to, but not so caught up in not not in a state of grasping, but just comfortable. That we need some nourishment and comfort. We need each other. We need company. We need sight, sound, smells, taste. But uh, then he just sat, did what we did today. And he used some of the concentration elements, the calming, the steadying. But he didn't just let calm and steady be the end. He said, you know, 
the pleasure of that, that could easily get intoxicated with it. And I'm not gonna, I don't want that to take over. Instead, I'm going to use this calm, use this steadiness, use this sharp attention to study the flow of my experience. And he said, I'm not getting up until I really see, find something reliable. And he paid attention, he paid attention, he paid attention. The more he paid attention, the brighter his mind got. It's like rubbing sticks. The brighter his mind got, the more he saw that his mind was shining. And then he saw everything coming and going. He saw that just the truth of life is impermanence. And the more he saw it, the more he let go. I'm revisiting some of the things we talked about earlier. The more you see and welcome the changing conditions, the more we let go and the brighter we get. And then in a flash of insight, because I have to cut it short, he realized that as his mind got brighter and brighter, shining in its, in its natural clarity, he, saw, oh, he said, oh, there, my, the mind that is knowing this whole dream-like nature of reality is untouched by it. He said, luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it's usually caught up in stuff so there's no, when we're not trained. But then he said, luminous is this mind, and it's free of whatever visits. And he woke up to an unconditional well-being that turned out to be the nature of his own mind. And the very nature of your mind, the very mind through which you're perceiving right now, is already from the beginning free. But we are so identified with the various things that visit that we miss this open secret that that within our own nature is is a a natural freedom and peace. So our practice of focusing and refining is really helping us get back in the neighborhood of of recovering of those words from Thich Nhat Hanh that I said earlier, you who are the richest person on earth who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child, come home, reclaim your heritage, and uh, wake up. That's why we practice. So I wish you all good practice. Come see me on Tuesdays. Thanks for your support of the the book. Thanks for being here, giving me the opportunity to remember. Uh, Sit every day, walk every day, eat every day mindfully, not too much. And and practice loving kindness, stealth loving kindness wherever you go. Even though love, affection will flow from attention, sometimes because we're so prone to and conditioned to ill will that we need to practice loving kindness. So under your breath as you drive home, love everybody up, okay? Thank you. (laughs) Nice being with you. want to find out about my activities, go to missiondharma.org, missiondharma.org, or the link for Mission Dharma is on the spiritrock.org site as well, missiondharma.org, and if you need to contact me, there's a, a link there.
I like I I tried it when I was I tried it like, like Sorry. Yeah. Because it was just yeah. everything so distracting. So Rich, we're going to put 20 on that rack. So now Rich, roll that closer. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.